0: welcome to real decarbonization a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future i'm tisha schuler your host and the ceo of adamantine energy our series of mini pods accompanies my new book real decarbonization how oil and gas companies are seizing the low carbon future so you will hear from guests about what resonated with them and also get their take on what's happening next On today's show, I speak with someone I really enjoy talking to, both on the air and off. Armand Cohen, president and co-founder of the Clean Air Task Force. So he has an undergraduate degree in history from Brown University and a law degree from Harvard. And in 1996, Armand co-founded and became the president of the Clean Air Task Force. You can learn more about Armand's biography in our show notes. I hope you enjoy this pragmatic and optimistic conversation I had with Armand Cohen. Armand Cohen, welcome and thank you for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks Tisha, happy to happy to join.
0: I'd love to jump in because in the book, I make the case that oil and gas companies need to develop an actionable 10-year real decarbonization strategy. I wanted to talk to you because you're such a pragmatic climate hawk, I would say. And I, I'd love to know what you think, as a leader of an environmental NGO, what do you think these plans need to include for you and other colleagues to find them compelling?
1: Well, Tish, I think the first one is pretty obvious. On the current business model, get as absolutely tight as you can on scope one emissions you know specifically methane management from the oil and gas infrastructure so absolutely buttoning up that very very tight leakage problem is that that's just a no-brainer and that's that's just the ticket price for entry beyond that i think that what i really am looking to see from companies is a plausible path to zero not just for your own operations, but in terms of the global product. You know, again, that's not going to happen in 10 years, but you have to have a, a direction of travel that gets you there. So what I see missing from some of these company plans is more of a vision of how to get there. There are way stations, various projects, you know, maybe some slight diversification into renewables, or maybe some hydrogen or some CCS, but what would it mean to actually scale to the point where the hydrocarbon is really or some other product is being delivered with a, a zero or near zero greenhouse gas footprint? So very, very serious investments in carbon capture and storage, hydrogen of all colors, the pipeline networks necessary to support a CCS and hydrogen enabled economy. You know, And then there's the diversification possibilities. There is the Total and Ecuador model of diversifying into renewables, but I have yet to see a serious thought piece from a major focusing on things like, could we be doing nuclear? Could we be doing large-scale advanced geothermal? A lot of interesting work going on in deep hot rock geothermal right now that might match the skill set of oil and gas companies quite well or even the nuclear electricity business as long as diversifying into renewables what the industry has as a skill set in addition to large balance sheets is an ability to manage large-scale infrastructure development capital projects usually the industry has been pretty good at bringing them on time and on budget and there's a lot of cost discipline and that is frankly what decarbonization on the planet is all about, building a lot of clean infrastructure very quickly. I don't see that level of vision emerging, at least although I, I must say I'm not reading every report, really emerging from any, any companies and certainly not more than a handful if, if there are any. So that's really what I think the plan would really need to, to have that kind of long range and truly near zero vision.
0: Yeah, there's a few things to pull on that you brought up there. But just to recap things that really resonate with me, one is just acknowledging that industry's contribution can be at scale. And also we have those skill sets to work at scale. But what I'm hearing from you is that Companies really need to articulate this net zero vision and the very plausible pathway to get there. We are seeing more and we will continue to see more of that. Some new ideas you brought up are novel to me is, you know, the idea of oil and gas companies pivoting into nuclear. And I I agree that we're going to see more going on around geothermal that could be really exciting. Let me push on the opposite, which is when you see a plan, what makes it fishy? What do you think undermines industry's credibility when they're talking about being leaders in the decarbonizing energy future?
1: Well, I can't say, Tisha, that I personally scrutinize these reports and very closely I uh, just don't have time it's you know not so much i mean there's the usual gauzy photographs and that sort of thing of nature you know that always kind of i understand to be marketing but i think i just look for substance honestly and it's not so much what's in the plans but it's kind of what's absent what's absent is this kind of path to zero even just a statement that we're working on it because no one can be expected to have a complete vision right now it's just you know we're in early days and honestly you know the progress of the industry in my 40 years of career from being essentially in denial about this problem to in the last 3 or 4 years being reasonably well focused on the fact that that they have to do something is a big change what i've yet to see is sort of the commitment even to thinking about the sort of zero carbon product world that they might li- be living in, and that's that's what I search for in Bain is what comes out of these reports and plans is is more incremental thinking, which is fine as far as it goes, but it would be nice to have a destination or endpoint, which is what the electric utilities have committed to. You know, with fairly concrete, there's there's more than a handful of electric utilities around the world that have, that have actually a plausible pathway there. And admittedly they have more options because they're not wedded to hydrocarbons as their core business. But as I mentioned, there are, there are all kinds of plays, even within the hydrocarbon world, that could benefit from a lot stronger vision from the industry.
0: That actually touches on an, an idea that I was quite enamored with maybe a year ago. Which so, so maybe it's time for me to become enamored with it again, which is this idea that for oil and gas companies to participate in a meaningful way in leadership around decarbonization, they have to articulate an aspiration for total decarbonization. And I get excited when I think about the industry engaging in that way because there is so much opportunity for scale, for affordability, for execution with the industry at the table. One of the things I worry about, Armand, is that the industry won't be invited. (laughs) They won't be welcome at at these these planning tables you know whether it's a cop gathering or a serious aspirational policy table what do you think what what conditions are required from industry leaders to convey the kind of sincerity and commitment that allows them to be included. And I think you gave a great example with utilities have made that pivot in large part, but I don't think oil and gas companies are viewed or welcomed with the same open-mindedness. And any thoughts or advice about that?
1: Well, Tisha, what I've seen in the electric utility industry is that it usually takes a very high-level decision by the CEO to say this is the direction we're going, and the boards, of course, saying this is the direction we're going, we're committed to zero, don't know how the hell we're going to get there completely, but you know we're going to start down that road. I'm not sure I've seen exactly that level of commitment and openness. I think there are two things. One is that aspirational statement that's sincere. I guess number two would be outreach to leaders in the space, uh, the environmental space, those who are willing to engage to have an honest off-the-record dialogue about like, what would this actually mean, and then engaging some of the bigger thinkers on this topic. Now, that may well be going on with the big thinkers. We've had some discussions at Clean Air Task Force with some of the, the majors about some of these things. I haven't gotten the sense that they're really interested in the deep dive yet. So I think it would go beyond aspiration into consulting with kind of major thinkers and and thought leaders, as well as influencers and, and advocates in the space. Now, it is also true that not every environmental group is going to want to engage with an oil and gas company. I know a number of my peers would just write off oil and gas companies as hopeless dinosaurs that will never get it and just have to be eliminated off the, the planet. I'm not utopian about this. You can't have a conversation with everyone. But I do think what I've seen in the electric utility industry starting about maybe five or seven years ago was a willingness to just basically take the blinders off, initially behind closed doors, just saying, "Okay, what is it going to take? And we're open to this. We'd like to see a partnership of thought, at least. And, you know, we might not be able to persuade our board or our shareholders to go there, but it's at least worth thinking about. So aspiration plus rolling up your sleeves and, and having some pretty candid offline conversations. I don't think this is something that happens in a hearing room or necessarily in a formally announced plan, at least not yet.
0: That's really interesting. And I I, I like this idea that you're bringing up of consulting with other leaders to imagine together what this action could look like rather than companies uh putting, put you know, working in behind in their own boardrooms and then coming forward with their suggestions. It, Reminds me of something I've been thinking about, projects on the ground, but I think it may apply to our broader industry vision and role, which is that it used to be that companies would consult with communities. We're going to build this thing, and, and this would have been true of a wind project or an oil and gas project. And they you know, gather some feedback, and then they proceed with their project. But now, between environmental justice and a very active community engagement and how Projects get built. I think that all future projects, whether traditional or new energy, are going to have to be co created with all kinds of partners and community partners. And environmental justice is just putting a a real exclamation point and emphasis on how much input. Communities will have. I'm curious from your world, you had mentioned early on, you know, we're going to have to build a lot of stuff to decarbonize. How do you think about this idea of working with stakeholders and co creating the energy future?
1: Yep well look i think it's absolutely essential by the way the oil and gas industry shouldn't be particularly uh, singled out because the reality is that anyone building large-scale energy infrastructure that includes large-scale solar large-scale wind transmission what have you is in the same boat of we've're moving very slowly there's a lot of opposition at the community level to large-scale infrastructure of any kind no matter how green it is so the oil and gas attachment certainly makes that more complicated from an optical and ideological standpoint. But I think what renewable developers are certainly realizing, and we're certainly advocating this, and we released a report in California a couple of weeks ago, basically saying that probably no infrastructure is going to get built at any scale without a very large scale, I'll call it planning effort. There needs to be a broad social license that's anchored not just in the particular project, but how that project fits into a whole. And I know that sounds a bit utopian that, you know, we can't plan the energy system. That's un-American. I think the reality is that if you're going to do large scale, even I'm just going to dwell on transmission for a second, or large scale solar, we're finding that to get to the one gigawatt, two gigawatt solar kind of project, or the, you know, the long distance transmission line, it's going to have to be justified as part of of a plan. Because if you don't have that larger contextual justification, everyone's going to always be able to object and say, well, why am this compared to an alternative? Or why here? Why not somewhere else? So I think spatial planning is going to be an essential element of the mix. Uh, again, not just for oil and gas, but this co-creation idea at the high level, making sure something is part of an integrated plan. And then at the granular level, each project certainly will also have to have that touch and feel.
0: Mm, what a great way to think about it. I really like that. So one of the themes of of all of my work at Adam and Teen with oil and gas companies is the evolution of, of companies, the way the leaders evolve, the way the the expectations and plans evolve. I imagine Cleaner Task Force and other environmental NGOs are under as much pressure in this moment to evolve. How is Cleaner Task Force evolving and how are you meeting this moment as a leader in in new ways?
1: Well, you know, I'd say that it's been an evolution for us. I mean, I think the aha moment for us, you know, we started out basically just fighting coal plants and saying, well, if, let's get rid of coal and, you know, gas will fill its place. And then in the U.S. on the power sector, and then we'll get a 50% reduction. And then on about 2000, the modeling was sort of saying, well, actually, that's not enough. We really need to be aiming at zero. Our evolution was to go from sort of a, let's just force pollution regulations to, okay, what's going to replace What's going to provide the kilowatt hours and, and the MMBTUs? And you know that took us into things like carbon capture and nuclear, more recently advanced super hot rock geothermal, thinking about large scale renewable siting, thinking about system requirements. So our evolution, and I, and I think that of some other environmental organizations, has been to, you know, we're really good at saying no. To stuff or criticizing things, you know. I think the evolution has been to become more of an active partner in thinking about what is this, what does this uh, system look like uh, in the future, and what what are the key elements uh, from a technological standpoint. So that's been our evolution. The other big evolution, I'd say, as an organization, has been to start looking at the developing world more seriously as a domain of activity. You know, it's interesting. The IEA just came out with its uh, WEO twenty twenty two, and they said, "Oh, gee, fossil fuel." Is plausibly going to peak around 2025, and then it's a downward climb. That assumes that the developing world remains poor and doesn't have that much access to energy. That's a reality that we're starting to engage with. We developed uh, two years ago a project looking at Sub Saharan Africa as a way to think about the evolution of the energy system. This has been a very Northern dominated conversation, and the global South is going to need a lot more energy if it's to participate in a modern economy. And so that's the other major evolution, is kind of pivoting out of our northern mindset and and really trying to work with leaders within the region to understand what the needs are and and actually how the demand for energy growth might be uh synchronized with this path to zero.
0: Mm. Well, it, it's so heartening to hear you say that and I will say just in my brief time of knowing Clean Air Task Force the organization has gone from a very specialized almost obscure organization to the, I think a really a, a real force of pragmatic, nerdy, and that's a compliment coming from me, <laughs> pragmatic, nerdy engagement and how we're going to get stuff done. So I love hearing that show is going on the road to really be thinking about these these critical Uh, opportunities to bring people into the middle class and developing economies. Last question for you, Armand, even though I could talk to you all day, this is a mini pod. So any, I know you to be an optimist uh, as much as you're also a pragmatist, any optimistic thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: Yeah, well, there's this apocryphal story, you know, I'm not sure it's true, but uh, that, you know, at the turn of the century, last century, people were fretting in New York City about drowning in horse manure and the automobile came along and created its own problems, but that wasn't a problem after a certain point. I mean, t- t- the optimistic part of me says technological change can happen not overnight, but, you know, over a period of decades, you can have pretty substantial transformations. The you know, the growth of the wind and solar industry is, is one example of that. You know, we do have examples of deep rapid decarbonization, not necessarily for that reason, but France's nuclearization of its grid over a period of 20 years. There are pathways you could imagine where we move quite rapidly, whether the 2050 goals are going to be achieved in 1.5 or net zero by 2050 is another question, but... I'm optimistic because I I feel like the amount of capital and brainpower Mm. that's going thrown into this, I I sometimes say that when I started my work in the mid 80s, I think there were like maybe 50 of us environmental folks who were working on this problem. There must be 50,000 or 500,000 people, or I would say even millions at this point within an outside industry whose job is to wake up every morning, either from the technology side or from the policy side and think about how do we push the planet towards zero emissions? And that's a big change. So, you know, you kind of have to feel like with all those monkeys typing, maybe we get Shakespeare out the other end. (laughs) I kind of joke about that, but there is a collective hive mind that I think is beginning to focus on this issue. And it's just unprecedented. I mean, it's exponential in the last few years. So technology can move fast. I know this is not social media, that large-scale infrastructure has a totally different deployment pattern. I do think that you know, if we think more in terms of multiple decades and don't you know, fix so much on whether or not we're going to hit the 2050 target, but whether we're in a very, very strong direction of travel, you can actually get pretty optimistic.
0: Mm, couldn't agree more. What a great place to end it. Thanks so much, Armand, for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: All right. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to chat. Always a pleasure.
0: That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Armand for taking time to share his thoughts with us. I really liked a couple of things that came out of today. One, this explicit idea that company leaders need to co-create with environmental leaders. I really like that idea. Also the hive mind, (laughs) the idea that now there's just this exponential amount of uh, talented brains working on decarbonization. It does make success feel inevitable. And of course, uh, some of my favorite brains are in the oil and gas industry. I'd like to know what you liked and what resonated with you. And I'd like to hear what you didn't as well. So please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about my book at realdecarbonization.com and I work at Adam and Teen Energy at energythinks.com I want to take a second to thank Adon Rubio and Lindsay Slaughter for making the Real Decarbonization Podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Shuler wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.